Well, evening. Uh, I'll stand up here. I wander about a lot, so uh, don't be surprised if I'm not standing still. That's mainly because I've got ADHD, um, which is a superpower for those that don't know. Um, so long as you're not in school, otherwise it's a hindrance. Um, I'm on medication as well, but that's worn off now, so unlucky. Um, I want you to know that I only stand here before you tonight purely and simply by the grace of God. Um, courtesy of the NHS recently, I did break my hand snowboarding. I thought someone was going to cheer then. Um, not off-piste when I was doing 10-foot drop-ins and, and jumps and all that sort of thing, but when I went back on-piste and was going about three miles an hour and just slipped on the ice and punched the ice and did a spiral, displaced spiral fracture on my hand, which now has three screws in it. So, uh, praise the Lord. Um, no, it's good, because I didn't break any legs. So, it is by grace that I can literally stand here. Um, so, it's fantastic. I, I love snowboarding. I love riding my motorcycle. Um, I love all sorts of things, but I am an adrenaline junkie. Um, part of that, my wife says, is because of my ADHD. I think it's just because I'm a bit of a nutter, but that's just me. Um, just to clear up another thing as well, the reason Tile Kiln Church is called Tile Kiln Church is because there used to be a farm there called Tile Kiln Farm. And the reason it was called Tile Kiln Farm is because going back a long time before that, it was the area in Gallywood especially where they would extract clay from the ground to make tiles. So there was a tile kiln there originally, but you know, I don't know if it was in the Saxons or something, I don't know, it was a long time ago anyway, it's before I was born. So that's why Tile Kiln Church is called Tile Kiln, purely and simply because it's where it is, and that's the Tile Kiln Estate. Uh, it's as boring as that, I'm afraid. Um, but if ever you're up that way on a Monday or a Wednesday between uh, 9 and 12, pop into The Kiln, which is our coffee shop that I run on Monday. So tomorrow, if you're not doing anything, come along. Free cake and coffee. Yeah? All right, good. Sold. Um, I keep going to pick up a microphone. I've got it in my hand. So let me tell you why I think youth work is so important. Um, number one, I'd be out of a job. Um, number two, I'd be homeless. Number three... Um, is the fact, um, those are joking, I'm joking aside. The reality is, the reason I'm involved in youth work is I never intended to be a professional Christian, for want of a better phrase. I have been involved in youth work for many years, more than 26, so that's all we're going to say. I know I don't look old enough, but I am. I've been married now, this is my 23rd year of marriage, and I've got four children. My oldest is about to graduate university, as long as he doesn't stuff up his finals, um, which he won't do, it's fine, he's going to graduate. My second oldest is on his first year of a four-year master's in Sheffield, uh, doing human biology. No, no, plant and animal biology. Uh, Thomas, who's graduating from UEA in Norwich, has just done geography. Um, My third oldest son is just coming to the end of his lower sixth, year 12. Lower sixth, I'm old school. Um, And... He's, he's studying a number of different things. Uh, his favourite subject is probably drama, which, you know, just, just taken after me because I used to be involved a lot in drama, but more about that later. And my youngest is a, my daughter, Esther, who is in year nine and hasn't got a clue what she's doing. No, she's just like, taking her options and waiting to find out. Well, she hasn't, she hasn't got a clue what she's doing because she doesn't know what her options are yet because she's put them in, but we never know. So that's my family history. We've lived in Chelmsford since just after, well, 2001. We moved here, February 2001. And I first met uh, Beachy and uh, Revbot. And he introduced me to, to the Revbot. And I didn't understand what that was about because he, he couldn't do any Michael Jackson dancing, which was a bit weird. Um, but, yeah, it's all to do with cars, apparently. That's right, isn't it? See, I, I do remember all those years ago. 
Um, yeah, and I've got on with Gary ever, ever, ever so well. Um, we've got the same crazy sense of humour, and we're both really passionate about uh, youth work, not as a part-time stepping stone, but as a full-time investment. And I was involved when I first met Gary as youth workers, just as a volunteer. Uh, I had a real job. Uh, I got paid real money. I could live on it, um, and I didn't have to live by faith. I could just live by my bank balance. Um, but God changed all that, made me redundant, gave me another job, and then gave me an opportunity. Once I got reestablished in a good job where I was earning reasonable wage again and with the risk of promotion, um, God said to me, why don't you quit that and work part-time for an organization that's going to pay you really poorly but expect the earth of you? And you'll have to travel all around the country instead of being settled again like you know you are now. And I thought, that sounds great, God, thanks. How will I pay my mortgage? Uh, and he went, don't worry, you haven't got a mortgage. And I went, you're right, I rent. So that was a result. Um, so I started working part-time for a Christian charity called Counties, and I was in charge of a project called Jesus Live. I was the national coordinator for that. You've had it here a number of times, and, and I've come up and fixed it even when I wasn't doing it. But never mind, I won't go there. Um, so that was a, a really interesting time. And at that time, the church said to me, look, we... We, we want to make sure that we're honouring what, what you've done in terms of responding to God's call in your life. We want to pay you for the voluntary youth work you do at our church. So we'll, we'll employ you part-time as a youth worker. And I thought, well, that's quidzing because I'm already doing the work. So happy days. I love some money. Any back pay? No. Okay, fair enough. So I was part-time at accountants, part-time at the church. And it was after that that our church got its first pastor. And he said, do you know what? You should go to Bible college. And I went, you know what? You should keep your ideas to yourself. Um, so I went and um, studied part-time theology at Cliff College, uh, graduated from there with a qualification in youth, mission and ministry, because I specified that I wanted to do youth work, that actually that's the only thing that I was interested in, not that I'm not interested in the rest of the church, because obviously they pay my salary, I love them, but um, the fact that I'm really passionate about reaching out to young people, and I'm going to tell you a story tonight about two young lads, which is the reason that I'm so passionate about youth work, uh, that's Jimmy and Duncan, and Duncan just to give you a bit of perspective, the reason why I'm even more passionate about it, Duncan was murdered uh, six and a half years ago, nearly seven years ago this July it'll be, 1st of July, seven years ago, so 2012, he was murdered uh, for be, being involved in things that he'd walked away from. But we'll, I'll go into that in, in detail in a minute with their story. But I've always been passionate about uh, youth work ever since I became a Christian, mainly because I became a Christian when I was youth. Um, well, I was an adult, but I'd only just an adult legally. But I want to tell you about um, th- these two lads that really, for me, are the main reason that I'm involved with youth work. Without any doubt, this is the reason I do youth work. And hopefully, by the end of the story, you'll agree with me that it's a very good reason for me to be involved in youth work. So Jimmy and Duncan are from South London. They're from a place called Putney. And they moved to Peterborough, uh, which is just north of Cambridge. And when they, well, Jimmy was, oh, I don't know how old they were, about five or something like that. They were four or five, that sort of age. So Duncan would have been two years younger than that. So you, were, you do the math. Um, so they moved, they moved to Peterborough then. Um, it's Jimmy I know better than, than Duncan, if I'm honest. Um, and at the age of about so nine, about nine, Jimmy started smoking because he started hanging around down the local park and he saw the lads smoking. He's like, yeah, I want to be one of the lads. Yeah, come on in. They're like, do you want to puff on my fang? He's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, look at me. And by the time he was about 10, he was rolling his own cigarettes, knew how to roll. 
But as a result of that, he also got involved in other things that they got smoking, not just tobacco, but um, solid marijuana. Now, if there's any young people in the room, they won't know what that is. But it's basically, before skunk, cannabis used to be sold in a different form. But we'll have a drugs lesson another day. That's something else that I do as well. I do do drugs education. So if you want to book me for that, I'm available. Um, so Jimmy was smoking, basically, marijuana. And by the time he was 11, uh, just going up to secondary school. Oh, I forgot to tell you. By the time he was 9, actually 10. No, 10. By the time he was 10, he had actually learned to ride mopeds which he found really useful because he was actually stealing them at the time. And it's a lot easier to ride away on a moped than to push it. So he got involved in the activities that these young, young lads, this gang, this crew, however you want to label it, we'd call them um, a peer group in England, but it's a gang. Um, they, they were getting involved in all sorts of illegal things, mainly to raise funds for their drugs, uh, and mainly because it was just for the, the sheer thrill of it, if you want, for the adrenaline. So Jimmy got involved in all that. Um, and sure enough, uh, his younger brother, Duncan, who looked up to him, uh, soon got dragged into it, or rather tagged along and wanted to be involved in it. And when Jimmy wasn't around, Duncan wanted to prove himself to the, to the bigger lads. When he was about 12, he started taking pills of different, various different natures and stuff. Um, he was at a secondary school, obviously, in year two, or as you, uh, sorry, second, second year, or as you call it, year eight. That's right, yep, yeah, good. So in year eight, he started um, sort of taking some stuff into school, and he was supplying stuff to his friends at school. He was instantly had this reputation of being quite cool because he could get hold of stuff. And when it turned about 13, 14, that's when things got a bit sketchy. He got into debt to a local dealer. He, he was getting things on tick, which basically means that he's saying, oh, you give me it, I'll pay you later, I'll pay you later, I'll pay you later. Um, some, we, modern people call it finance, but um, in the drug world, it, but there's no such thing as finance. It's... You, I'll lend you 10 quid, you owe me 15, and it, it gets bigger and bigger. He got into debt to the tune of about, I think it was 2,000 pounds or 1,500 pounds, something like that. And he thought, oh, do you know what? I can't really get that with my 50p a week pocket money. Um, not sure how I'm going to do this. So then he started doing favours for the, for the guy that he owned money for, running drugs, and he thought, oh, do you know what? I don't want to do this. This is a mugs game. And the dealer said to him, look, you've got 24 hours to get me the money, or I'm going to break your legs. Now, Jimmy was a smart lad, and he knew that his uncle in London, and he didn't know at the time the reason why his parents had moved out of London. He thought it was just his dad's job. But he knew his uncle in London was involved in drugs, because when they went round there, his cousin showed off about how much drugs he had in his room, wraps that he had of amphetamines, of cocaine, um, joints that he had pre-rolled, or zoots, as you now call them. Um, and... He had loads and loads of gear, and he's like, what are you doing with that? He goes, I'm going out tonight. I'm selling it all. I've got my bum bag, because that was pretty cool back then. And he goes, I'm going to go sell it all. I'm going to get money. Look how much money I've got. And he showed him rolls of notes. And he's like, no way. So he knew that his uncle was involved in some way with drugs. So he turned around to this dealer, and he said, look, if you touch me, I'm going to ring my uncle, and he's going to kill you. Which, on reflection, probably isn't a really clever thing to say to someone that's been supplying you drugs, especially when that person who wanted the money off you, owed the money to Albanian mafia, who are the people that control drugs, prostitution, trafficking, and weapons in Peterborough, to this day. So this street drug dealer said, right, I'll give it 24 hours, I'll check out who your uncle is. If you're lying to me, I'm going to break both your legs, and you still owe me money. Jimmy thought, yeah, probably want a good move. But then the drug dealer came back the next day, and he said, I don't work for the Albanians anymore, I work for you. And my uncle told me to give you this money 
and to give you this knife. It turned out that Jimmy's uncle, was, whose surname was Lenton, was part of a fraternity of people called the Richardsons in South London. Now, if you're from the 70s, you'll have heard about the craze in the Richardsons. If you haven't, come and talk to me afterwards. But basically, it's a big criminal network in South London, and it's run by this family called the Richardsons. And his uncle, his uncle Vince, or Vinny, or Vince, that's it. His uncle Vince, um, his cousin's called Vinny. His uncle Vince was basically the front man for the whole of Brixton. He looked after drugs, looked after weapons. And unbeknown to Jimmy, at that time, the family had had a big fallout with the Albanians back in about 75, I think it was, 74, 75, where an Albanian boss had come to London. This all sounds like a movie, but I can assure you it's all true. Um, an Albanian boss had come to London, and one of their hitmen had gone up and gone, is this you? Yes, bang, shot him dead. And so there'd been a bit of a rivalry, because when you shoot someone dead, they get other people get upset. And, uh, and so the family had had a bit of a bad uh, relationship with the Albanians and Peterborough, and they saw it as an opportunity to bridge a gap. So that's a brief history of Jimmy and Duncan and what they were involved in. Um, and it all really ramps up to one night when Jimmy was doing his A-level physics homework, and there was a knock at the door. They are, that's a good effect. And uh, at the door was this local youth worker who was an absolute nutter called Martin Upton, who I actually know very well. He said he used to go around and, and do uh, detached youth work. Everyone thought he was mental, but um, he had the time of day for people that didn't, for people that didn't, other people didn't want to talk to, basically. And he went up to Jimmy, he said, do you want to come play football tonight? And he thought, do I want to do my A-level physics homework, or do I want to play football? Yep, I'm coming. And that was it. Him and his brother got in the car, they went to a football match. As soon as they got to the football match, they walked into a hall, it was a big sports hall, and he's like, guy's in there already, and he's like, I don't know anybody here apart from my brother, he's thinking to himself. And he saw them all hugging each other, and he thought, nah, man, they're all batty boys, isn't it? Yeah, it gets me. Because that's how he used to talk. And he's like, nah, fam, me, I'm not down with this thing, gets me, yeah? And, um, me scratching with my brethren, me nog, jamming this. Uh, anyway, right, so that's how he was talking. He thought it was hard. And um, he's like, no, no, they're all, they're all gay or something. I'm, I don't like this. I'm, I don't want to be. I'm being groomed by some Christians who are clearly not a weird. Now, the reality is he'd never seen genuine love and affection shown to other people. So he mistook what was friendliness and kindness as being something that was over-sexualized. Because to him, that was the only way he could think of anything to do with love. Sad, but still true for a lot of people today, unfortunately. So he got involved in his football match. He got fouled. Uh, he got angry. Um, he stood up. He punched the guy that fouled him, knocked him out, which is a bit embarrassing for the guy because he was only 17 at the time. Um, then he got, in, got pulled off the pitch. You can't do that. You can't do that. Then he fouled the guy. Then he got into a fight, and then he basically got he thrown out of this football match. And it was in the way home in the car that things changed for Jimmy. His brother Duncan was sat in the back seat behind the driver, who was Martin, as I told you. He was sat in the front passenger seat. Martin was going on and on and on about, you know, do you want to know about Jesus? Da, 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 come to church. Um, and what I haven't told you about Jimmy is he had a really good voice. He was a chorister at Peterborough Cathedral. He went to the King's School because he was a chorister at Peterborough Cathedral. He went to church every Sunday. He believed that there was a God. And thought, that's all right, I'll go to church, I'll sing in the choir. And he did get in trouble once for swapping the um, 
incense for a block of cannabis resin, but that's another story for another day. It was the same time as the MP, David Lammy, was sat near him, actually, but that's another story for another day as well. Um, and he thought, someone's going to church on Sunday, I can do what I like. Or as, as we know them, uh, C of E, not Church of England, Christmas and Easter. Um, Christian, that was the kind of Christian he was. He, he could sing the Mass in Latin, but it meant nothing to him personally. To him, it was a religion. It wasn't a faith. It was a religion. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't follow a religion. You can ask my leaders. I cause more problems than, than anything else for them and have done for the number of years I've worked there because I have a faith, a personal walk with Jesus Christ who I am fully dependent on because if I do stuff in my own strength, the only thing I will do is stuff it up eventually. Give me enough time. So Jimmy sat in that car and... Martin's going on and on. Do you want to become a Christian? Do you want to know this? Do you want to know Jesus died for you? Jesus? And he's like thinking, will you shut up? And as he's looking out the window, zoning out, you know, like, you ever seen Charlie Brown, Snoopy? I'll name it this part of the audience. You all seen Charlie Brown and Snoopy? Yeah, Charlie Brown's mum, you know. You know when you are playing on your Xbox and your mum comes in and asks you to tidy your room, yeah? And you don't hear her. All you hear is, we're both on the safe wavelength now. Um, that's all he heard. He just zoned out and didn't, wasn't listening at all to what the guy was saying. And as he was looking out the window, he thought, where am I going to be in five years? I'm either going to be dead, in prison, or just chasing shadows like I am at the moment, watching my back, trying to think of the next deal that I'm going to do, or how I'm going to get around a problem, or how I'm going to get this sorted, how I'm going to get that shifted. How am I going to stay on top of things? He thought, what, what am I doing with my life? And he thought to himself, this guy's giving me a guilt trip. This Christian is giving me a guilt trip, talking about Jesus, and should I know him? And as he was thinking that, he looked at the front. Bearing in mind, he knew people that had died of a drugs overdose. He'd known people that had been killed, shot, stabbed. And he knew people that were either in prison or juvenile detention or waiting for sentencing. So these weren't like abstract realities to him. These, this, was, this was everyday life. And the area that he lived in Peterborough at that time was described as the ghettos of Peterborough. And the police would not go there except in a car. And there had to be a minimum of two officers in a car. And it wasn't after dark. So where he grew up, it was pretty rough. And he carried a knife on him. By the time he was 15, we're talking about when he was 17 now. But when he was 15, he got a Beretta 92F, which is a semi-automatic handgun. And he used to carry that around with him sometimes. So he's sitting there, he's looking out the window, and then he saw all these scenes flash before his eyes of things he'd done wrong from stealing biscuits as a kid, stabbing people, being stabbed, robbing, mugging people on the street, burglary, car theft, motorcycle, you, you name it, he'd been involved in it. And he thought, man, this guy is proper tripping me out. And at that point, all that I heard from the driver's seat as Martin turned to face me was, do you want to become a Christian? And I looked him square in the eyes, and I told him, I'm Jimmy, by the way, no. But out of my mouth came the words, yes. And I was like, nah, man. Me don't want none of this thing. So I lean over, and I'm going like, no, 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 no. But the whole time I'm going, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm thinking, what is going on? My head's all over the shop. I can't say what I want to say. I thought, right, I'll just get out of the car. And as I tried to open the door, I opened the door, 
But I couldn't move. I felt like my brother had his hands on my shoulders. And I turned around and I swore at him. I went, Duncan, will you? A few, insert your own obscenities there. And I looked and he was sat in the corner at the back of the car doing exactly the same thing, looking like this. I now know that that was the conviction of the Holy Spirit because of all the sin that was in my life. But at the time, I couldn't understand what was going on. So he said, right, let's pray. And I thought, right, yeah, let's just, just do this prayer thing. When I get out of the car, I don't have to see this nutter again. And I closed my eyes, and he started praying in Christianese. Now, is there anyone over the age of 18 who knows what Christianese is? No. Is there anyone under the age of 18 that's willing to explain what Christianese is? Would you like me to explain for you? You're too modest. Um, it's all the language that we use in church that means absolutely nothing to people that haven't been to church or don't go to church. So I'm sat in the car, and he's going, Father God, I thank you for your holy sanctification through the redeeming sacrifice, for the, the penal substitutions that you poured out as you poured a judgment for the sin. And I'm like, what is he going on about? He's having going to, he's going to have an earlier if he's not careful. He's going to pop a vein or something. But that's how he was praying. But that's because he was Pentecostal and he was passionate about seeing souls won for Jesus. And in his mind, this kid who was involved in drugs, who was a mess, who he knew was the head of a large gang, this kid sat in his driver's seat and just said yes to Jesus. So he was on fire with the Holy Spirit. He was going mental. Me, in the meantime, thinking, what a nutter. He's totally got the wrong end of the stick. And I sat there, and I remember roughly what I said to God was this. I said, if you're real God, prove it to me, because do you know what? I don't know what I'm doing with my life, and in five years, I'm going to be dead in prison or just doing the same thing, and I'm getting fed up of this. It's just doing my nut. If you ain't real, though, there's nothing you can do about it. So I'm going to get out of this car. I'm going to nut him. I'm going to rob his motor. I'm going to torture over farmers, which is where we used to burn out any cars we didn't want, which was the field. We called it farmers because it was a field that belonged to a farmer. We were quite creative with our naming of locations. Uh, so I'm going to burn this car over farmers. Um, if I ever see a Christian again, I'm going to punch him in the face. If I ever see a Bible, I'm going to rip it up because if you ain't real, what are you going to do about it? That was basically what was going through my mind. But then I added on a caveat, which was always a mistake with God. I said, but if you are real, I want to know. And he went, amen. I went, amen. I thought, right, I'm going to punch him now. And I turned, and I went to punch him, and I realized I couldn't clench him. It's a bit like this. I can't clench my fist, but it wasn't quite like this. I just didn't have the strength. I thought, this is really weak. I thought, I'm going to hurt my hand, if nothing else. What's going on? And for the first time that I can remember, I wasn't angry. I was just thinking, this is really weird. I feel really, like, chilled out, like I'm high. But I know... I haven't taken anything for hours. I now know that that was the Holy Spirit coming over me and God's peace. And I'd never experienced peace before like that. I felt my heart getting warm. So instantly I thought, man, I've got indigestion. It wasn't. It was literally the Holy Spirit coming into my heart. I know that now because I'm an educated person. And I've experienced God in my life many, many times since then on a daily basis. Amen. Good. Let's make sure you're awake. And uh, I just looked at him, and as I was about to say something, I just heard, as clear as I'm talking to you, I love you. And I burst into tears because I knew that that was God. 
I had no doubt. I didn't have to go and say, oh, I've just heard this voice. I just wondered, could it have been Jesus or was it God? I don't know if it was Jesus. I don't know if it was God. I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit. And to be honest with you, I really don't care. I knew it was God. I didn't know if it was God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, but it didn't matter to me. In that moment, I realized that God loved me, and the problem I had with that is I didn't even like me. And I knew what I had done. And suddenly I realized God was real, and he knew everything I hadn't done as well as what I had done. Everything I thought about and hadn't done as well as everything I had done. Because he sees the seen and the unseen. He knows our every thought. And yet, he was telling me, I love you. My life changed forever that night. I became a Christian. I started going to church. I started wanting to do stuff with the local church. And now they still do it. Um, now the local church in Peterborough, a thing called Wheelies, where they take a caravan out and they do open-air preaching to uh, drug dealers and to gangs. Because I started doing it, they, they did drop me off at first and didn't stay with me initially. Um, which was fine, because uh, they thought that, that I was doing some sort of trick where I'd get, rob them and then sell their caravan or something. I don't know. They're, they're very distrusting, these penties. But I, um, they dropped me off, and after a while, they could see that I just wanted to tell people about Jesus. And they saw that my ways were a bit unorthodox, so they had to stay with me, because I would literally grab someone, assault them, and say, let's pray for healing for the bruising that I'm going to give you in a minute if you don't believe in God. You know, I, I, was, a bit, I was a bit of a rough diamond. So... I had some people, some pastors that came alongside me and sort of said to me, no, James, you can't punch people and then pray for them. You can't do that. You can't do this. You can't say you're going to write off the money they owe you if they love Jesus. It doesn't work like that. But the passion was there to see people know this God. And it was because I wanted people to experience what I'd experienced. Because if they experienced it, there's no doubt that they were going to follow God. Now, as I said to you, tragically, six and a half years ago, seven years this July, my brother was murdered. I brought him here tonight with me. I carry his ashes everywhere I go. But he was murdered because he was still involved in the family lines of things. I went off to university shortly after that because I was 18 in the July. In the September, after collecting my two A-level results, I started with four, ended with two. I got United Nations. I thought maybe I was a career in politics. That's a U and an N. That's an ungraded and near miss. Basically means you're a failure. I went to Hull University because there's not enough thick people up north, so they shipped me up. And I studied computer integrated engineering at university where I met my wife at the Christian Union. And through involvement in the Christian Union, we not only uh, went out, we got engaged while she was still at university. And the year that she graduated, we got married. And we've been married ever since. It's my first wife, my only wife. It's the only thing that I'll ever do once. Um, she's tried to make me promise that if she passes before me that I'll do it again, but I told her I love her and I've never hurt her that much. She needs to respect that. That's a joke. Sorry, sorry I do apologise. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I'm passionate about youth work because if someone hadn't taken the time to take me as a scumbag, and I was a scumbag, I was a waste of oxygen on this planet, to be honest with you, as a teenager. I was selfish um, and the part I didn't tell you is the reason that I got involved in all that and looking for the gangs is because when I was nine and my brother Duncan was seven, we were both sexually abused by a very close friend of the family. And we couldn't tell anybody about that for six years. It, we kept it quiet. And it was only when we went to the police and then the police said to us, oh, well, yeah, are you sure you didn't imagine it? Now, I've been told since because of all the hoo-ha in the press about Jimmy Savile and everyone else that I should go back and 
Not at all. I've made my peace with it. I know the person that, that committed that offense has since come to faith, and I praise Jesus for that, and I praise God for that, and I know that he's married, and I know that he's a good man, uh, not by his strength, but by the power of God in him, and it is by grace that he is able to live, and I do not wish to destroy someone's life for personal gain. God has dealt with that, and he's dealt with that at Calvary. And who am I to question it? Because he dealt with all my mess at Calvary. I can't question the fact that he's dealt with that man's mess there. So I just give thanks God to God that he has come to faith. And I give thanks to God that my brother was saved that night. Even though he backslid, however you want to look at it, he, he went back to his old ways and got involved in drugs and, and criminality. I know that one day I will see him again. Because we're told in Scripture that God promises never to leave us or forsake us, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Paul reminds us, should I continue to sin that grace should abound? No. Why? Because Jesus has told us, I have come that you may have life and life in all its fullness. And for me, life in all its fullness is being able to leave my mobile phone out because if a text message comes in, I don't care if anybody reads it. If people ask me a question, I'm lazy. I've got a rubbish memory. So I just do this simple thing. And here's a top tip for you guys. Always tell the truth because you don't have to remember what you said. That was the biggest revelation I found when I became a Christian about my life, about sense of freedom, is that if I just tell the truth all the time, I don't have to worry about what I said because it's going to remain true. That's why I'm passionate about youth work. That's why I've done youth work in Hull, where we've worked with kids who are involved in drugs. Why do youth work in Chelmsford? Why... I love seeing youth services because, you know, I hate the phrase that was often peddled around when I was younger, which is, oh, the youth, they're the church of tomorrow. No, they're not. They're the church of today because without any youth, all you've got is a dying congregation. And I'm not being rude. I'm really proud, and please don't be um, let the devil take this and use this in a negative way for you adults. But our young people should be an embarrassment for a good reason, that they should be setting an example in the way that they're living their lives. The fact that we had a young person give testimony straight away about how they're seizing an opportunity in school, that's fantastic. We all do it, but sometimes we're embarrassed to share because we think, oh, it's, it's not as good a story as that. Do you know, my wife has never taken drugs. Um, until she met me, she'd never been drunk. That's another story. Um, but do you know what? She's got an amazing testimony of how she grew up in a Christian family and how she faithfully saw God from the age that she was born to the time that she became a Christian at the really old age of six or seven, I think it was, when she gave her life to Jesus. And she has got an amazing testimony about how she turned around a pony-haired, whiskey-drinking, fag-smoking uh, hoodlum who believed in Jesus but still swore when he prayed at university and turned him into a fine young youth pastor, as I was a few years back. And, you know, the fact is, I am only part of the person I am today because God placed someone in my life who he knew I would listen to, and I would submit to, and I would respect in the same way as I should him. And it's not been easy for me. Um, it's probably not been easy for my wife either. But she is very supportive. She's amazing. I couldn't do the work I do now without the support of my wife. Um, and I mean that sincerely, because she does a lot of my admin. So I really couldn't do that. She is fantastic. Gary's met her, and, and he'll testify to it. But it's so important that we don't lose sight of our young people. 
But it's so important that you live your lives as an example to them, both in the church and outside the church. It's because I got to go along and walk alongside pastors and I asked them difficult questions to which their answer was, do you know what, James? I don't know, but I pray God will tell you one day. And that was okay. Why? Because they weren't trying to give me some waffle about what the answer to my question was. They just said, I don't know, James. I can't answer that. You know, when I asked them, why, was, why did God allow me to be abused? That's a real fun question to ask your pastor. And, um, he, and my pastor was honest. He said, look, James, I genuinely do not know. But do you know what? God will use it for his glory one day. And do you know how many times I've sat down and I've had young people come to me and they've disclosed information and I can turn to them with 100% authenticity and say, I don't know what you're going through, but I do know something of what you're feeling. Let me tell you about what happened in my life. That doesn't take away the pain that I had then, but what it does do is it uses it for the glory of God now. God will use every instance in our lives, good or bad, for his glory if we allow him. The enemy will use every instance in our lives to stall us and to prevent us from moving forward in our walk with God and our testimony. Because once we trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, once we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, God raised him from the dead, Romans 10 and 9, we are saved. Romans 10 and 9, a favorite verse of mine. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's right. That is why you always want Jesus on your team if you're playing football, because Jesus always saves. Always. So if Jesus always saves, once we are saved, we can't be unsaved. But what we can do is be paralyzed in fear, and that's what the enemy wants to do. That is the biggest struggle our young people face, because they're facing the the two things, acceptance and identity. That is the biggest thing that we struggle with from the time we start school to the time we leave, and beyond. I think some of you agree. And the easiest thing for the enemy to do is to paralyze us in fear. And that's no more easy than at school or in the workplace or in the supermarket or when our friend asks us what we were doing at the weekend. We don't do it in our own strength. We just have to learn to trust in his. We're going to sing a song that for me is really, really, um, I think, amazing. I hated it when I first heard it, and I'll be honest with you, I found a woman's voice really annoying when I heard her singing it. But the words of this song are so powerful, and it really talks about how I felt when I, when I became a Christian, that I felt out of my depth, I felt out of control. But at the same time, it talks about how God leads us to a place where we feel out of control. And the reason for that is because when we're out of control, we stop trying to take control. And sometimes God takes us to a place in our lives where we feel that we are completely out of our depth. And sometimes he does that because it's the only way he can get us to see that he is there, that he is our saviour, and that he will provide a way.